Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello, and welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Ann Foster, and I have a scratchy voice. So this is part two of Queen Min. Last time we looked at, well, we talked a lot about setting the scene. Oldie times Korea, the Choson dynasty, we got into explaining a lot about the society. And then towards the end, Min herself shows up. Kind of not unlike a Princess Diana type character who everyone's like, oh, she's going to be like no threat at all. She just seems like so naive. And But Min is like, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to um, read every book and I'm going to put together this scheme to get rid of this overreaching father-in-law of mine, Daiwan Gun. And so then she kind of took over and became kind of the leader of Chosun Dynasty. And that's where we're jumping back in. So I'm going to start with another quote. So... I don't know if this is this isn't spoilery, but just last time I read a couple of quotes from Western, that's the phrase is often used. I don't know if these people are British or if they're American, but this kind of hints towards how Min is going to maybe open up the country a bit to the West. Anyway, an American acquaintance of hers called Isabella Bird Bishop described Min uh, later on in her life like this. Quote, on each occasion, I was impressed with the grace and charming manner of the queen, her thoughtful kindness, her singular intelligence and force, and her remarkable conversational power, even through the medium of an interpreter. I was not surprised at her singular political influence or her sway over the king and many others. She was surrounded by enemies, chief among them being Daiwangun, the king's father, all embittered against her because by her talent and force, she had succeeded in placing members of her family in nearly all the chief offices of state. Her life was a battle. She fought with all her charm, shrewdness, and sagacity for power, for the dignity and safety of her husband and son, and for the downfall of Daewon Goon. So, um, 1877, Min and her husband, Gojong, commissioned a study to study Japanese westernization. So, to see, I thought I knew what that meant, but I'm just like, did they want to study Japan, or did they want to study how Japan had been affected by westernization whichever thing they're going to study they sent a team um who reported back they were shocked at how large the japanese cities had become uh one of these ambassadors returned with a book called korean strategy which was written by a chinese person named huang Sun tian who advised the chosun kingdom should ally with china so remember we talked last time like there's the chosun kingdom and kind of, they're just surrounded by like much more powerful places. Like China is there, Japan is there, Russia is there, the US is there. So it's kind of like, ugh. 
like inevitably they're going to need to ally with somebody. And so this book suggests that they should ally with China. Min, who loves books, um, she took special interest in this book and commissioned copies to be sent out to all of the ministers. She had hoped to win approval from the Yangban, so the like aristocratic class, to invite Western nations into the Choson kingdom to open up trade with Japan to sort of keep Japan in check. And this is a bit, I talked last time I watched this movie, not a historically accurate movie. It's like the reign of Chosun Kingdom movies, the sword with no name. But in that, the character, so the Min character, she just says like, look, like we can't not interact with any other countries ever. And like, even just to like learn about them for if and when we are invaded, like we would just don't, we want to know more about them. Like what makes them tick? Like we need to start talking to other countries. And so I think that's what the real Min was up to here. She's just like, we just need to learn about them. We can't just be like, oh, we're fine. So the Yangban aristocracy opposed opening the country to the West. A person named Choi Ikhyun, who had helped her recently-ish with impeaching Daewangun, was also was one of people who was opposed to this. He said that the Japanese were just like the Western barbarians who had spread subversive notions like Catholicism. And this had been a major issue during Daewangun's quote, reign, um, when he was being the regent, he had uh, quashed Catholicism with massive persecutions. And so Queen Min's plan to like slightly open to themselves to other countries, uh, to the Yangban, they felt like she was suggesting something that would destroy the social order. So she distributed this book, Korean Strategy, and people were upset about it. And basically, like, things are just, it's a tense situation. Uh, but despite all these objections in 1881, there was a large fact-finding mission. So another one was sent to Japan. They stayed for 70 days observing Japanese government offices, factories, military and police organizations, and business practices. They also obtained information about innovations in the Japanese government, copied from the West, especially uh, proposed constitution. And on the basis of these reports, Min began to reorganize her government. So 12 new bureaus were established that dealt with foreign relations with the West, China, and Japan. A bureau of the military was created to modernize weapons and techniques. Bureaus were established to deal with commerce. Like, they were just kind of like, she's just all in. She's just like, look, here's what's happening. It's like 1881. Like, this is what other countries are doing. We need to, like, we need to change how we're doing some stuff. Like it's, it is no longer 1392. Like we are the Chosun dynasty, but like, let's just like progress a little bit is what she said. I imagine. Um, she also signed documents arranging for top military students to be sent to China, which at this time was under the Qing dynasty. So we're getting into a lot of Japan and China. I'm going to use the word shenanigans where it's just kind of like, which country are they going to side with? And like Japan and China didn't get along with each other. And just a lot of sort of like double and triple crossing. So Min wanted to send top Joseon military students to train in China. The Japanese volunteered to supply military students with rifles and train unit of the Joseon army to use rifles. I guess they didn't have rifles before. Min was like, okay, but like reminder, these students are still going to be sent to China to, for further education on Western military technologies. This modernizing of the military was met with opposition, just like everything, everything she did was met with opposition. I feel like she was doing a bunch of changes that seemed like maybe useful, but also she was a woman. And so everything we talked about last time where it's just like everyone 
around her, like all the people of the Chosun dynasty had all been raised for like, and their parents have been raised in like the last seven generations to just be like, women are only for having babies. And she was like, here's what's happening. I'm the smartest person here. I'm in charge. Here's what's, what we're doing. So like they were opposed to modernization, but they're also opposed to modernization being led by her. So I'm not sure if even they could separate how much of their antagonism was because it was her idea and how much they were just against the idea. So the special treatment of this new training unit caused resentment among the other troops. And then there was a plot to place, like to get rid of Min, uh, to depose Gujong, and to place Daewangun's illegitimate son on the throne. Min found out about this because she was like on top of it. She had her own spies, etc. Daewangun was like involved in this. It wasn't just being done on his behalf. He was like in it. Um, but he was kept safe from punishment because he was still the father of the king. And this is why it's like, in one way, it's like, okay, if you can just like adopt a new person to be the king, then you can have your dynasty for 500 years. That's great. But if you like have a new king and that king's dad is still around, then like it just gets complicated in a different way. So the Japanese chose Kangwa Island, which is near modern day Seoul. Um, at that time, it was near the capital city of the Chosun Kingdom, which was then called Hanseong. Anyway, the Japanese chose this place for their military base. And I guess some people were just like, do we want the Japanese to be like making a military base like right next to our like main city? People like her counselors were like, should we like mobilize an army? She said no. She tried to avoid war by signing a diplomatic treaty. This treaty opened Chosun to Japanese trading. And in it, Japan recognized Chosun as an autonomous state. Um, but shortly thereafter, a pro-Japanese faction began to emerge in the Chosun government. So I feel like a lot of the stuff that's happening here would have inevitably, like what the other countries are up to, what Japan is doing, what China is doing, no matter who the king was, like even if Daewangun was still kind of in charge, these things would probably still be happening. But Min happened to be the person in charge when these were happening. And she was kind of, she was on it. Like she had read all the books. She was keen to keep, she's a lifelong learner. And she was just, she saw what she felt needed to be done. And I don't know, it seems like kind of she was maybe the best person for the job for all these things that were going to maybe inevitably happen. So over the next six years, Min and her husband pursued this policy of slow modernization. But then, so June 1882, but there's still tension, you know, like there's always going to be tension, but especially if there's tension between like the old school military guys and these new people who've been trained in this new way. So members of the old military became resentful of the special treatment of the new units. And so they rebelled. They killed several important officials and then fled to the protection of the Daewangun, who publicly rebuked them, but privately encouraged them because he is a sneaky guy. And then he took control of the old units as well. So he's just, I don't think he's taking... I'm not sure if he's taking advantage of a situation or if he like caused this to happen, but everything I've read about him, I feel like he caused this to happen. Like he just happens to then get to take control after these people like spontaneously had a rebellion. Maybe, but whatever. So Daewangun ordered an attack um, on the administrative district of Seoul. So his soldiers, his like the ones who were loyal to him, they attacked police stations to free comrades who had been arrested, and then they began ransacking private estates and mansions belonging to 
Min's relatives because Daewangun had it out for her specifically. These, so this is like the old school officers who are now working for Daewangun. So then they stole rifles and they began to kill Japanese training officers. Um, they nearly assassinated the Japanese ambassador to Seoul, but he quickly escaped. This military rebellion then headed towards the palace where Min and Gojong were, but they escaped. And one uh, record of this suggested that someone who helped them was Daewangun's wife, who was still living there with them, even though he was in disgrace. Not sure. Anyway, but remember, she's from the Min family. Like she and Min are like second cousins. Allegedly, she helped him sneak out in disguise. Um, Min may have been hidden in a wooden litter, like one of those things where like people carry it and the people are sitting in it riding. She may have been hiding in it. Um, she may have tried to get Daewangun to stop going after Min, but that made him suspicious towards her. And then he kept his wife out of his affairs from then on. But more importantly, Min and Gojong escaped in disguise and fled to her relative's villa, uh, where they remained in hiding in Cheongju. In the movie, I keep coming back to this movie. I know there's so many K-dramas and movies, but this is like the sword with no name. So this is like, I watched the movie. I'm like, wait, what happened? So in the movie, it suggests that she did not escape with Gojong, but in fact, she escaped with her sexy bodyguard and they had to like sleep in a cave together. And she's like, oh no, I'm so cold in the cave. And he's like, ooh, body heat. It's like a very sexy movie. The sword with no name. I do recommend it. Anyway, so they weren't hiding, Gojong and Min. Daewangun could not find her. So he, I don't know if he knew that she had escaped, like if his wife had told her that, but whatever. He was like, she's dead. He announced the queen is dead. He held a funeral for her. He also had numerous of Min's supporters put to death. Um, he took administrative control of the palace. He immediately dismantled the reform measures implemented by Min and relieved the new units of their duties. He returned to the isolationist uh, foreign policy. Japanese and Chinese envoys were forced out of the capital. So he was just undoing everything Min and Gojong had done. But then the Chinese, with the consent of Korean envoys in Beijing, sent 4,500 troops to restore order, as well as to secure Chinese interests in the country. These troops arrested Daewangun, who was then taken to China to be tried for treason. And Min, who is not dead, returned with Gojong, took control again, and like undid everything he had already undid. So they were just like, we're getting back to the westernization, we're getting back to the like training the armies. Like this moment, I can't understate how cool this moment sounds. Just like he had said she was dead, and she just shows up, just like, guess what, bitches? She's not dead. It's a beautiful moment. It's it's giving me Fred again with the 300 witnesses just showing up like, yes, Min, yes. This is one of the moments when I was learning about her story in the first place. And I was like, oh, I need to do this on the podcast. So like she, or, like everyone thinks she's dead. She's not dead. She shows up like that's like the finale of an amazing episode of, of a telenovela. So, but... So everybody's, I like, I can't keep track of the dealings, the double dealings, like who's making a deal with what. So Min and Gojong are like a team or so it seems, or so she assumes, but everybody kind of knew that Gojong would be easier to manipulate because he was, because Min was the smartest person. Um, and he 
was easier to manipulate because he'd been manipulated his whole life by his dad. So the Japanese went to him privately without Min's knowledge, and Gojong signed the Japan-Korea Treaty of 1882, um, which included they would, like Chosan would pay 550,000 yen for lives and property that the Japanese had lost during the insurrection and to permit Japanese troops to guard the Japanese embassy in Seoul. Min learned about the treaty, obviously, right away. When she heard about this, she proposed China. Uh, she proposed to China a new trade agreement granting the Chinese special privileges and rights to ports inaccessible to the Japanese. So I think what she's doing here, I think her plan is just, she's like, she knows the Chinese Japanese, like to a lesser extent, the Russians, the Americans, like everybody kind of wants in on in the Joseon kingdom. But I think she's trying to sort of just like play them all off each other to distract them with each other. So maybe they can like leave Joseon alone a little bit, which is maybe her best option. She also requested a Chinese commander take control of the new military units. Um, and she got a German advisor to head the Marine Customs Service. So, I don't know, I think she's still taking seriously that book she read about, like, how Chosan should ally with China. Anyway, it's 1883. She sent a special mission to the United States, headed by her adoptive nephew. Again, I don't know, it's always mentioned when it's someone who's adopted. There's just, like, a lot of adoption of family members going on. Unless that's her adopted brother's son. Maybe that's what that means. So this mission, this group of people visited many U.S. historical sites. Uh, they heard lectures on U.S. history and attended a gala event in their honor given by the mayor of San Francisco and other U.S. officials. They dined with President Chester A. Arthur, um, discussed what was going on with Japan. So her nephew came back at the end of this mission and reported to her. This is a quote from him. I was born in the dark. I went out into the light, and your majesty, it is my displeasure to inform you that I have returned to the dark. I envision a soul of towering buildings filled with Western establishments that will place herself back above the Japanese barbarians. Great things lie ahead for this kingdom, great things. We must take action, your majesty, without hesitation to further modernize this still ancient kingdom. So I do want to just take a moment, because I don't think I've said this last week or this week, like there, I'm very much telling the story right now of like men what's happening in Chosan kingdom in this era. But in the back of my mind, I do know that in the 20th century, there is an extraordinarily fraught um, relationship between Korea and Japan. So that's like, I know that's coming later, but I'm not really talking about that here because we're just, we're talking about what's happening right now. And we're kind of not sure who's going to do what in the situation, but like, you know, referring to the Japanese as barbarians and stuff. I don't, I really am hoping, I'm hoping in these episodes, I'm just kind of telling you what people said, how people were feeling in that moment, um, just to try to get us all like right there with men, not knowing what the future would bring. So just to mention that, although I will try to avoid using words like barbarians. And we need to talk for a minute about the progressives. So this is a group founded during the late 1870s by a group of young men who were again the like aristocrats who fully supported the westernization of Chosan. Uh, the progressives wanted immediate westernization, including a cutoff of ties with China. 
Min didn't re- realize, or I don't know if they didn't tell her, she didn't realize that they were so anti-Chinese. And so she met with them a lot to talk about pro- progressive things, nationalism. Like she thought they were on board with her, um, but she didn't realize how like anti-China they were when she was like seemingly quite pro-China. So the progressives, they were advocating for educational and social reforms, including equality of the sexes by granting women full rights, issues that were not even acknowledged in their already westernized neighbor of Japan. So, I mean, going from women, you know, don't, can't, aren't known by their names and like are, can't go outside and like all these things I talked about in part one, that this group was like, we want women to have full rights. It's like a huge leap forward. Min was enamored with this idea at the beginning, but then she discovered that they were deeply anti-Chinese and then she turned her back on them because she's just like, oh no, that's not what I'm about. Because cutting ties with China immediately was not in her gradual plan of westernization because of like, she saw a bigger picture thing that I think the progressives did. Like the consequences Chosun would have to face if she did not play China and Japan off by the West gradually she's just so carefully trying to balance all of these different things. She can't, she was not prepared to turn against any other country because she knew that kind of antagonized them. And Chosun was not in a good position to defend themselves against some sort of war situation. However, 1884, the conflict between the progressives um, and the, I guess, non-progressives. So this is another faction, the Seidei faction, were pro-China and pro-gradual westernization. So this is kind of more where Min was coming from. So the Sede and the progressives. Conflict intensified. American, like the Americans, what are you doing here? Why are there Americans in all these episodes now? It's, I haven't done episodes of this podcast until recently, like this season, that like the U.S. even exists. So I'm just, sorry, I'm still startled when the U.S. shows up because we're in the 19th century. Anyway, so the Americans heard about this growing problem. Um, They were outraged and they attempted to bring the two groups to peace, like because they all wanted modernization. It's just one group wanted it really, really quickly. One group wanted it more gradual, I think, and more where they were not going to negotiate is the fact that one group was anti-China and one group was pro-China. So the Americans were like men, like you like the ideas and plans of both parties, except for the China stuff. So like, can we all work together? But the progressives were fed up with the Seides and the growing influence of the Chinese. So they sought the aid of the Japanese guards and staged a bloody palace coup in 1884, in which the progressives killed numerous high Seides and secured key government positions vacated by the people who they had just killed or the others who uh, fled the capital. And so this new administration began to uh, issue various edicts in Gojong and Min's names, like saying like, oh yeah, they totally want this to happen. Like they just took control. They wanted to implement political, economic, social, and cultural reforms. Min was understandably um, horrified by this approach, refused to support their actions, and declared any documents signed in her name to be null and void. But this just took, um, after two days this group was crushed by the Chinese troops. And this is why I see why Min didn't want to cut ties with the Chinese. So a handful of progressive leaders were killed. 
Once again, the Japanese government saw the opportunity to extort money out of the Chosun government by forcing Gojong, again without telling Min, to sign a treaty. They're like, it worked once, we'll do it again. So this was the Treaty of Hansong, which forced Chosun to pay a large sum of indemnity for damages inflicted on Japanese lives and properties during this coup. This is very similar to the last one. I don't know, do we kind of have a secret, sexy um, treaty? I don't know. It's secret. It's not sexy. So there's so many agreements being signed. I'm saying the names of them because I know there's like a lot of stuff you will know about this that I don't. Anyway, 1885, the Li Ito Agreement was made in China between the Japanese and the Chinese. So twist, these two teaming up, these two countries. In it, both China and Japan both agreed to pull troops out of Chosun and that either country would send troops only if their property was endangered and then each would inform the other before doing so. Both nations also agreed to pull out their military instructors to allow the newly arrived Americans to take full control of that duty. So the Japanese withdrew troops from Chosan, leaving just a small number of guards. Uh, I'm Min. Min knows what this is, what's going on with this. I don't entirely anyway, but I'm glad she's there. It says here Min was ahead of the Japanese in their game. She summoned Chinese envoys and through persuasion convinced them to keep 2,000 soldiers disguised as Chosan police or merchants to guard the borders from any suspicious Japanese actions and to continue to train Chosan troops. Secret undercover Chinese disguised as Chosan. Like, this is like, you know, when Fredegund disguised the people as the Bretons. So anyway, I trust that Min figured this out and she knew what to do. So now there's like secret Chinese troops. But... Things are like, this is like, what a time to be in charge of this place. Like, it's just, again, I feel like Min is doing the best anyone could be doing under the circumstances, but like, her being a woman is definitely uh, getting in the way. And well, I guess not her being a woman, everyone being not a fan of women and control was getting in the way. But anyway, factionalism. It was almost impossible for Min to strengthen her country. The economy degenerated. The military was underpaid. Uh, the government appeared to be at the mercy of foreigners. So, 1889, another rebellion. And this time the farmers rebelled against the feudal society and tried to overthrow the monarchy. This is the Tonghak Rebellion. Min turned to her giant neighbor to help. That's their phrase, not mine. But anyway, China, again, like they've got her back at this moment. So China agreed to send troops to help out. But remember that thing they just signed where China and Japan had said, we won't send troops into Chosan without telling the other people. So China sent troops. Um, and then unbidden and unwanted, Japan also sent troops to the aid of Chosan. So the farmer's insurrection was soon quelled with promises to abolish slavery and provide relief for harmers. And Chosan began a series of reforms with the intent of importing Western culture and technology, but both China and Japan refused to withdraw from Chosan. So, like this, so that's 1889. Then the next major political crisis came five years later, 1894, when Min faced a coup d'etat by radicals who, supported by Japan, wanted Chosan to undergo rapid industrial and social modernization like had happened in Japan. Royalist Chosun soldiers and their Chinese allies soon retook the government and restored Min. Like the coup d'etat, like she was removed, but then she was restored. But the rebellion served as a pretext 
for Japan and China to both send yet more troops into Chosan, and this launched the Sino Sino the Sino Japanese War, which was fought primarily in Chosan. This ended with a decisive victory by Japan and the Treaty of Shimonoseki, in which China was forced to grant Chosan independence. But in reality, this basically meant Japan was gaining control over Chosan. Min vehemently opposed uh, this. To the leaders of Japan who looked forward to ruling as they had planned, Min considered the one bright spark in a corrupt Chosan court was nothing but trouble. Because she was smart, she knew what was going on, um, because she was... So they're just like, oh, we could take over much easier if there wasn't like a smart person who like had read books and like had good instincts and like knew what to do going on. So at around the same time, the book we quoted from last time written by a woman who met men, her book Quaint Korea was published. So 1895. Here's some info from this book from someone who saw men in this era about kind of how she worked. Quote, Queen Min has not only been the power behind the Korean throne, but she has been, even more than the king, the all-seeing eye of Korea. Her spies have been everywhere, seen everything, reported everything. William Franklin Sands, a United States diplomat who came to the Chosun Kingdom around this time, said about her, quote, she was a politician and diplomat who overtaken the times, striving for the independence of Chosun, possessing outstanding academics, strong intellectual personality, and unbending willpower. So she's just an impressive person. Following this war, she made overtures to Russia because Russia was a powerful enemy of Japan and thus an important potential ally for Chosan. In reaction to this threatened alliance, the Japanese administration decided Min had to be removed from power. And so, at dawn on August 20th, 1895, in a plot codenamed Fox Hunt, and engineered by the Japanese minister to Chosan, Japanese troops entered the palace by force to assassinate men. This is what is happening. So bodyguards tried to stop them, uh, but the troops demanded to know where it was the queen. They made a search of the palace, killing some who refused to cooperate, but no one gave her away. Convinced that Min was disguised as one of the court women, the Japanese then murdered two of these women. It is said that Min seeing this then came forward, like maybe she was disguised as one of them, but she wouldn't let her ladies be killed just for her. Um, and then she was assassinated. She was stabbed. Her body was burned with kerosene in a nearby wood. Like her body was, yeah, she was pretty brutally assassinated. Gojong was not harmed because they knew that she was the... She was the brains behind this operation. This was a horrific thing to happen. Everybody was pretty horrified, like not like that she had been assassinated, but also in this like brutal way. Like it wasn't like the most slick assassins. It was just kind of like brute force, just like troops coming in. Just like it was felt like this wasn't even not that assassinating her was good in any way, but this is especially disrespectful, which it was. The people of the Chosun Kingdom and foreign ministers were outraged. The Japanese government quickly recalled those involved, um, sort of in a show trial. They detained them briefly, and then the trial, writes Japanese historian Yamabe Kantaro, was a deliberate miscarriage of justice designed to protect the culprits. None were convicted. Gojong was really, really, really upset. So he, we're going to talk about him in a second. 
But after he recovered from the shock of this, he tried and executed the traitorous Joseon people who had been involved or had helped with this assassination. And he declared a new Korean empire with himself as emperor. So no longer king, he was now the emperor. And he announced a new posthumous title for Min, Empress Myeongsong. So this is kind of like Pedro and Inez, where like she became not the zombie queen of Korea, but one of the things I read called her like the ghost queen. Like even dead, she uh, was named Empress. And then there was a state funeral one month later. So we're going to talk about Gojong just to sort of explain, I don't know, the legacy or how things kind of wrap up. So he had been chosen, remember, as a young child to be the king, mainly so that his father could be in charge. He had never been formally educated, which is why he often turned to Min to conduct international and domestic affairs. Like, and you know, a credit to him for knowing that, knowing when to um, get her to step in for him. I appreciate that he wasn't just like, I know best. He's like, oh no, you clearly know best. You can be in charge of everything. So he, you know, when they first got married, he liked to attend parties and she liked to read books and they didn't get along. But as he saw her in action, he grew in admiration for her intelligence and her ability to learn quickly, her keen political instincts and her just being like bomb ass the best. So as the problems of the kingdom grew bigger and bigger, he relied more and more on her. Um, she was his rock during times of frustration. I feel like he must have been her rock because I'm sure she had frustration too. And by the time she was assassinated, his affection for her was undying. So after her assassination, he locked himself up in his chambers for several weeks, refusing to assume, resume his duties. His father regained political power following Min's death. Like, of course, this fucking guy. He tried to have her status lowered to that of a commoner posthumously, where he's like, what if we just say she was like never the queen and was just like some orphan girl? Gojong was noted by scholars. So a man who like, his father had told him what to do his whole life. And I love that he stepped up at this point when Daewon Goon was just like, let's just say she was nobody. Gojong apparently said, I would rather slit my wrists and let them bleed than disgrace the woman who saved this kingdom. Yeah, so he would not do that. The Daewon Goon died two years after Min. Allegedly, Gojong did not attend his funeral due to their strained relationship, as one can imagine. So Gojong continued to rule as a puppet king under competing Japanese and Russian military forces. Korea, as it became known, became a Japanese protectorate in 1904, and in 1907, Gojong was forced to abdicate. Their son, Min Sun, then succeeded as King Sunjong, although he too is only a figurehead. In 1910, Korea was formally annexed by Japan, forcing Sunjog from power and ending five centuries of rule by the Choson dynasty. We're moving to the legacy part. So, from what I can understand, Min is one of the most controversial figures in Korean history. Some view her as a charismatic politician and diplomat who tried to lead the country into a new era. Others see her as a manipulative, power-seeking woman. I think I really can't speak to uh, all of the facets of being a person in Korea and what, how you see her. And because it's so hard to untangle what she did with like what happened later in Korean history. She was the person who was effectively in charge when 
Chosun Dynasty ended, um, the Japanese took over. So I asked um, my friend Umbag, who's from Korea, who I asked her, like, do you think people, like, was her reputation, is it so controversial because she was, because of her progressive policies or because she was a woman? And without hesitating, Umbag was like, oh, it's because she was a woman. Like, people just didn't, it was just seen as so inappropriate for a woman to be so forceful and so opinionated and to have this sort of control. And I hope after I describe like how the Chosun dynasty, how women were viewed, like you see why that would be so shocking that it would be hard to even look at what her politics were, where it's just like she was a woman who took charge and that's just like, can't handle that. And now we're just going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. So the thing is, I have allergies. My nose gets stuffy. I get sort of sinus congestion, and it just really can sometimes get in the way of doing things I really want to be doing, like recording this podcast, for instance. But you might have noticed that when you're listening to this podcast, you never hear me sounding like a duck or uh, with a runny nose. I'm never wiping my nose or stuff on the microphone. And that's because luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin-D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. So I've been taking Claritin-D for my allergies, and the thing is, when I'm using it, you wouldn't even know that I have allergies. My voice sounds so crystal clear when I'm recording and when you're listening to me right now. But also when I'm not doing podcasts, when I'm doing other life-related things, like just going about my day-to-day life, like sitting on the bus or going to work or whatever, going to the movie theaters. I don't have to worry about like, do I have tissues with me? Do I have a handkerchief? Is this noise bothering everybody? Am I being gross? Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. So aside from the political stuff, here are some other things she accomplished during her time as queen. Like she oversaw this kingdom during a time of enormous social change. So, for instance... So she invited Westerners. So the formal introduction of Christianity happened in 1884 when she invited a man called Horace Newton Allen. Um, Christianity spread rapidly in Chosan. He, with her permission, this guy, Horace Newton Allen, she gave him permission to arrange for the appointment of other missionaries as government employees. He also introduced modern medicine in Korea by establishing the first royal medical clinic 
Um, then a bunch of Protestant missionaries began to come to Chosan, just like super excited to have a new place to be missionaries, I guess. Yeah, so all these people, famous Protestant missionaries, I don't know, moved there. They established churches within Seoul. Then Catholic missionaries came. I think I'd said before, like when Daewangun was kind of in charge, he had really stopped out Catholicism, but now the Catholics came back. So the Christian missionaries made contributions towards the modernization of the country. So concepts of equality, human rights, and freedom, and the participation of both men and women in religious activities were all new to Joseon. Min was, um, she was all on board of integrating these values within the government. She wanted the literacy rate to rise. And with the aid of Christian educational programs, it did so significantly within a matter of years. So it's not just they came in and they were like, this is Christianity. They like, came over and kind of brought in other stuff too, like education. So she approved plans to establish a palace school to educate children of the elite in English language. She also gave her patronage to the first all-girls educational institution, which was established in Seoul in 1886 by American missionary Mary F. Scranton. So in its early stages, the school was more of a place for poor girls to be fed and clothed, which you need to deal with that before you can even get to education. But this was a significant social change of school for girls. And this institution is still around today as Uha Women's University. First, it was called Uha Academy. Yeah, so she valued the missionaries' knowledge of Western history, science, and mathematics, and was aware of the advantage of having them within the nation. So she saw no threat to the Confucian morals of Korean society by introducing Christianity. She also, one of her goals was religious tolerance. So the first newspaper to be published in Chosan was, let's see, it included contemporary news of the day, essays and articles about westernization, and news of further modernization of Chosan. Um, this happened during her reign. Then, yeah, the publication of a Korean language newspaper was a significant development, and the paper itself played an important role as a communication media to the masses. Yeah, so the there was like a couple, there's like stops and starts. There's like one newspaper, then that stopped. There's another newspaper. These were all under her reign. 1894, a newspaper entirely in Hangul, which is the like written language. Actually, wait, a newspaper entirely. So the first newspaper was in Hanja newspaper. Then there was a Korean language newspaper. Then this one, a newspaper entirely in Hangul, making no use of the Korean Hanja script. So this started in 1894. This is called the Seoul News. It was published as a weekly newspaper under the patronage of both Gojong and Min. It was written half in Korean and half in Japanese. Music theory, Western music theory also came in during this time. Again, the Protestant missionaries introduced like Western music like in the form of Christian hymns, but this created a strong impetus to modernize Korean ideas about music. So instruments like Western musical instruments, like the organ, um, a Christian hymnal was published in the Korean language in 1893, commissioned by men. So she never, to be clear, became a Christian. Uh, she remained a devout Buddhist with influences from shamanism and Confucianism. She also opened the economy. So they suddenly started doing trade. She also, I think, created mint, like to mint coins. Like for a, this isn't a min coin minting moment, but it's like a coin minting moment. So, yeah, so she created a new coin in 1884, which secured a stable Korean currency at the time. 
Western investments started to take hold. With the aid of the United States Department of Agriculture, a new project called American Farm was started on a large plot of land donated by Queen Min to promote modern agriculture. Farm implements, seeds, and milk cows were imported from the United States. Um, The Bureau of Machines was established during her reign. Steam engines were imported. However, despite the fact that Gojong and Min brought the Korean economy to an acceptable level to the West, modern manufacturing facilities did not emerge due to her assassination, which kind of got in the way of all of her plans, obviously. So that's Queen Min. I find this story so interesting. There's so many resonances that are similar to other, just so many other ruling women we've looked at. Like the one that I feel the most similar to is it's a bit, it's a bit Rani Ditta, where it's just kind of like, who did she have? The Damaras, which reminds me of like the Yangban, which are just kind of like these aristocrat men who are around her just being like, a woman, what are you going to do? And she's just like, fuck you. I'm so smart. Just do what I'm saying. I know what I'm doing. And you just have to deal with them, which is also reminds me of like a Mary Queen of Scots moment. I love that Gojong was there for her in the end, like that she kind of won him over from his dad. It's just such an interesting story. And I'm really excited to learn more about Asian history. Honestly, if you're familiar with anything East Asian history, please let me know. I would love to know more people to write about, although I could also just watch all these Chosan era um, K-dramas, and I'm sure I'd find some people. Anyway, time to score Queen Min. So some of the categories, I have like a pretty strong idea. Some of the categories, I'm not sure. So like scandalousness, this is like one where I really need to put myself, like think about all the stuff we talked about in part one, like what the culture was like, where it's, you know, she wasn't, she wasn't an Hortense Mancini. She's not like doing like, secret sexy things running around but like the fact that she like read books um the fact that she like usurped daewangun with this secret conspiracy plan like the fact that she really worked towards modernizing chosan like those things were so scandalous to the people around her i mean the fact that she like was a woman who educated herself and like spoke her mind like that was so scandalous to like, given what the culture was like when she started being queen to what it was like when she ended being queen, like, she, it was very scandalous to the people around her, like, that she read books, that she, like, did things on her own, that she wielded this influence that was so unusual, that she didn't host tea parties, but she would rather, like, talk with scholars. Like, it was incredibly scandalous. I'm, like, honestly, like, Considering what the culture was like, the actions that she took were super scandalous. And that's part of why people weren't on board with her. I'm going to give her a nine. I'm giving her a nine for scandalousness because in context, all that stuff, scheminess, I feel like is one where she will get really high marks because the question I think of is like, is it like, is it amount of schemes or is it the effectiveness of schemes? And it's like, especially with like, um, Looking at a Korean woman or even an Asian woman or just like a non-white woman, scheminess has so many other connotations. So I want to emphasize that I mean this in a in the most celebratory manner. Like somebody who is smart and intelligent and like comes up with like resilient, like someone who comes up with a plan, thinks of all the angles, like makes it happen. Like, and she was all about that. Like the fact that she 
while everyone was just being like, oh, is she going to have a baby? She was secretly finding ways to like depose Daewangun. Like the way that everything she did, like her political savvy was so clutch. Like she was, she figured out until she was assassinated. Like, well, and the fact she was assassinated because she was so smart. Like I'm going to, like for her, this is just like smartness, cleverness. Like, and I do think, honestly, I think this is a 10 because she was so smart but she also knew like when she was eager to learn from other people and then their ideas helped her come up with new ideas like her the lifelong learning of it like how much she liked books like just she was so successful in the face of great odds because she was just so clever and smart and I'm gonna put that all under the umbrella of scheminess in the best possible way her significance is one where I really am just going to lean back to people who I talk to about this. Like she's very, very, very well known, I think it would seem, to people in modern day Korea or people familiar with Korean history. Um, so in that Malancene way where it's just like you know, people who you just kind of know who she is, even if you don't know exactly what her story is, that's the sense I get. Like even children are just like, oh, Queen Min. They just know that she there's something impressive about her, maybe something kind of scary about her. But in terms of significance, like she partially like she did so much stuff. Some of the things that happened to Chosan maybe would have happened no matter who was in charge. But she really dove right in there, like with China, with Japan, with Russia, with the U.S. Like she really like the changes she was implementing, I think, were really crucial. She was assassinated. So I'm not sure what would have happened there in the 20th century had she still been there. I do think she's incredibly significant. And I think I'm going to give her, oh, I really don't, I don't know enough about Korean culture to know, but I do think that she is really famous. I think the stuff she did was really impressive. I'm going to give her a 9.5 for significance. This is going to be a high score. Like, where is this going to land? The sexism bonus is a challenge. It's always a challenge, but that's, you know, it's when there's a story of somebody who is just like, could have done more, but the patriarch held them back. It's easy to give them a high score for her. I mean, she was living in this incredibly repressive society for women. Like there was, but there was a lot of other women around who probably could have done more stuff if, had they been able to, but she did do a lot of stuff. Like she became the queen and then she just kind of like kept going. Um, she really proved, she was lucky in a way, I guess, that Gojong supported her intelligence um, and didn't get in her way. Like she certainly faced a lot of sexism, obviously. Like this is at least a five just because of like the culture she grew up in. How much does sexism hold her back is tricky because if this had been a man, things might have gone differently. If Gojong had been as smart and as savvy. As men, there's a lot of extra hurdles because she was a woman, because people didn't respect her. But at the same time, she, how much did that get in her way, you know? Like eventually she was assassinated, not because she was a woman, but because she was an effective leader. Like a hot, like a 10 sex bonus would be a woman who was not able to do a lot of the stuff she did. Like she kind of busted out and was able to do these things. I'm going to say for her, controversially, I don't know. I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to say a seven for sexism. So math time. This is going to be a high score. 
That is 35.5, which, for context, that is the Chevalier. Dayon has 35.5. Oh, how perfect is this? Malanzine, 35.5. Because I do think culturally, in terms of everything, like the two stories do remind me of each other in some ways. Yeah. Um, Harem Sultan has a 36. Her stories also kind of reminds me of this a little bit. Um, and Jinga has a 36. So Queen Min is up there. Like if we're looking at the top scores, she's seven. Like she's seven in seventh place of everybody. I think this is an incredibly good score for a person that I had never heard of before, but who is so interesting and fascinating and important. And I'm really happy to have been able to talk about her. And I'm happy where she landed, I think. Just for reference, at the moment, um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Six of the top ten are all from the international season. I'll give you, you know, I'll give you the top, the rundown at the moment. I do, someone asked me a while ago, I do ask, get asked every now and then, where is the scandal to scale? Where can I find it? And it is not currently online anywhere. I hope one day to do that. And maybe I'll have time to in the future. But at the moment, so Fred again is at the top, 38 Queen Margot, 37.5. Then Njinga, Harem Sultan, both 36. La Chevalier, Dayan, Malinzine, and Queen Min are in next place with 35.5. Christina of Sweden has a 33.5. And then Joanna of Naples with 33. Is that 10? Nope. And then 10th place is Cecilia of Sweden with a 31.5. So that's Queen Min. Thank you for listening. Again, as I always say, but I really mean it. I will never stop meaning it. If you live anywhere near anything I just talked about and you can like visit it and take a picture of it for me, I live for that. Like I love an armchair armchair travel moment. If you're in Korea, love it. If you could show me a picture of like anything related to Queen Men, my new icon. If you go to vulgarhistory.com, there's a button there where you can at least do a form and on that form, you can leave me messages with feedback, thoughts, Especially with stories like this, where I'm really, I'm excited to share the story, but it's very much outside my regular wheelhouse. And I want to, um, to make sure, you know, if you have thoughts about this, I can absolutely do like a follow-up to say like, hey, here's thoughts from people who know more about Korean history and what they think about it. I'd love to share that. But also if you have other suggestions of people that you'd like for me to talk about on the podcast, you can leave those suggestions there. You can can let's see support the show vulgarhistory.store is our merch place if you use code tits out for free with shipping or tits out 10 for 10 percent off um if you have ideas for queen min merch is something else reach out let me know uh, you can also reach out let me know on instagram where i'm at vulgar history pod you can send me a dm there or also on twitter where i am at vulgar history if you want to support the show on patreon and get some extra stuff you go to patreon.com slash Writer, and that is where um, you get early access, ad-free access to episodes of Vulgar History. You can also, depending on how much you pledge, if you pledge at least $5 or more a month, then you get access to Vulgar Peace Theater. Maybe one day we're going to do The Sword with No Name, I don't know, um, or another K-drama. I would love to. Anyway, and also that's the bonus podcast I do with Lana Wood Johnson and Alison Epstein talking about costume dramas. We've recently done Les Miserables, the Hugh Jackman one, by the time you hear this. I don't think we'll have done the next one yet, but our next one up is going to be Newsies. Oh, and then after that, we're probably going to be, we're definitely going to be doing Queen Margot. 
the movie about Queen Margot, which in the Queen Margot episode, I talked about it's so good. I think everyone should watch it. But at that point, when I recorded that a couple of years ago, it was not streaming. Now it is. You can watch the movie. It's literally called Queen Margot, Margot with a T. It's on, I think, Amazon Prime. It's on YouTube. It's on Apple. You can watch it. It's a great time. Oh, also, you should tell me if you're reaching out to me. I'm just like really thirsty for messages. I love, I love being in touch with you all. If you have suggestions of K-dramas, like if like your favorite Chosan era TV show or movie, like I'm all about it. And I really want to watch more of these sorts of things. And I think that's everything. Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you next week. And until then, keep your pants on and your tits out. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Christina Lumagi. My name is Jenny Owen Youngs. And I am Kristen Russo. And together, we run Buffering, a rewatch adventure, a family of podcasts moving through our favorite 90s genre television. If you're a fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, well, great news for you. Our very first podcast adventure took us through all seven seasons of the series. We covered it spoiler-free, episode by episode. For those of you who want to start the show for the first time, you can find that podcast pretty easily. It's called Buffering the Vampire Slayer. Inside that podcast, you'll also find an original song that pairs with each glorious episode of Buffy and original character jingles for so many of our Buffy favorites. Buffering has been praised in places like Time, Esquire, Paste Magazine, and the New York Times, and we've chatted with dozens of cast members, writers, directors, and fans along the way. Come hang out and rewatch some of your favorite television with us and a wonderful community of listeners. Learn more at BufferingCast.com or find us on socials at BufferingCast.